tonight on Arena. Enda McGrattan talks to us about their film Pregnant with a Drag Queen and live music from Choice nominee Rachel Lavelle. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Since its beginning, the Imagining Ireland concerts have celebrated the musical interplay between Ireland and England, Irish life in England, ideas of modern Irishness and the contribution Irish music and literature has made to culture in the United Kingdom. The concerts have been staged both in the National Concert Hall in Dublin and at London's Barbican. For the last, or the latest rather, instalment of Imagining Ireland, singer-songwriter Surika Richardson invites folk stars Ye Vagabonds, Susan O'Neill, Rachel Lavelle and others to join her for a night of beautifully crafted songs on Sunday the 3rd of March. I'm delighted to be joined live in studio by Rachel Lavelle and Sorica Richardson is joining us on the line as well. And you're sitting right in front of the keyboards, Rachel, so I guess <laughs> that's probably where we should start. Um, the, the debut album, Big Dreams, released in November, Really interesting album. I know we reviewed it on the programme here very positively a while back and I was listening to it again today. And It's such a blend of things, it's hard to pin down <laughs> what exactly uh, it is. But talk to me about that title, Big Dreams, and what that maybe signifies in terms of where you are in your in your musical career and musical development. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, the title, I guess, um, it is sort of like having big aspirations um, and striving for something and then getting stuck in the way and getting a bit distracted but also big dreams in sort of like the dreamy ethereal world of like the imagination Do dreams uh, play a part in in the songwriting process for you? Um, they do, yeah, they do I have had some some lyrics have come to me from dreams definitely Um and yeah, I like to tap into that dream world. I'm very mm. interested in in that whole kind of sleep and yeah. What what can happen when you're when yeah. you're in inverted commas not working, but in fact your subconscious is yeah, doing exactly. conscious is doing it all for you. Well, you're going to play the title track from the album. Give me a little bit of the background or the inspiration to this song. Yeah, so I wrote it. Um, uh, I started writing the the melody when I was in Lisbon a couple of years ago. And it felt like this weird thing about the end of your life or um, that you were about to die and memories of beautiful people that you loved flashback and that, um, yeah. And I also asked uh, Dear Nivrian if she would provide a, like a voiceover of an kind of an inner monologue or also um, perhaps me from the future, I don't know, or hmm. just her, Dearin. Um, With Dirin Dufresne, we should explain for people who don't know, a well-known broadcaster, obviously, uh, but many will know her now as the voice of the, it's the Lewis voice, the voice <laughs> of the, the announcer of the various stations on the Lewis. And I think, was that partly where you got your inspiration to use her on the album? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I was stuck because <laughs> I wanted another voice that wasn't mine. And then when I was on the Lewis, I was like, She's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and so was born the idea. You see, I suppose inspiration comes in the funniest of places at the oddest of times. Let's hear the song, Big Dreams. Thank you. I came for the comedy I left for the bus There was nothing new to me I have a lot of feelings How strange to be living in The bodies change, the face, the skin You used to be an architect of beauty So
was a little girl, I had big dreams. I had big ambitions of becoming somebody. How did I get here? I sit inside myself wondering, how did I get like this? I sit inside myself wondering, song there Big Dreams title track from her debut album and Rachel one of the artists that is part of the Imagining Ireland uh, series of concerts that Surika Richardson has been involved in curating and Surika listening to that uh, down the line are you actually in West Kerry uh, this evening Surika because you you made the move down (laughs) there recently I think didn't you I did yeah I moved down to West Kerry from Dublin um Honestly, it's about a year ago now, but I was on tour mm. so much last year that I, I almost feel like I only moved last month. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm still unpacking my case and things. Um, I'm actually not in West Kerry tonight. I'm, I'm in Dublin, but I'm, I'm ah. doing uh, some writing stuff yeah, fair and enough. some music stuff down the road. Yeah. I, I, and I'm just wondering if the move to West Kerry and indeed the way you went about choosing the acts uh, feature uh, f- that are featured in, in this curated set of concerts from you. I wonder, did you listen to Dieran Livrain's voice in, in Rachel's song there? I am open to the possibilities. I am open <laughs> to the possibilities. I guess you had to open your, your mind wide to, to listen to a variety of artists that, that would fit what you were looking for. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the hardest part of curating this was the fact that I couldn't book everybody I wanted to, to be honest with you. Like, we're so spoiled for choice, I think, in Ireland at the minute with um, with just the, the strength and the diversity of the music that everybody is making. And um, like even last week, I was like still texting my manager and texting the guys at the concert hall, like with people's names to add to the bill. And they were like, um, circa, you know. We're we're pretty we're pretty full at, uh, at this point. So um, so did yeah, you have? But it's 
Did you have to find some kind of guiding criteria then? Surely it wasn't just, I really like these people and I really like what they do with their music. Was there something that, that was specifically guiding you in your choices? I mean, I, I think what was important to me was that, you know, that we would book people who kind of come first and foremost from like different sort of musical worlds and musical disciplines so that like you can have a band like You Vagabonds on the bill Mm. next to someone like Abby Koulibaly, next to someone like Moyo, next to someone like Rachel. Um, you know, people who are, who are like, like you Vagabonds make music that is so different to my music. My music is very different to Abby Koulibaly's music. And I think um, maybe music that doesn't always exist side by side on a bill. I kind of wanted, wanted to try and put those things together. And then also people, you know, people who are from different parts of the country as well. Yes. Um, so it's nice we have like Susan from Claire, Soak from Derry and just artists who are kind of at different stages in their okay. career as well, I think. Yeah, Susan O'Neill and the, the Susan that you're speaking about there. Uh, the other thing is, I, I think New York has been a very significant part of your own uh, musical development, uh, Surika. Did that, did that help you in any way, having had that, I suppose, distance or view from a distance of what's happening in Ireland? Did that help you when it came to this way of looking for links between Ireland and the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think like I I, I moved to New York when I was 18 and then I moved back to Dublin mm. when I was 26. And it, I think for anybody who leaves, leaves you know, wherever you're from, it, it gives you a different perspective on the place where you come from because you can kind of look at it from, from a different vantage point. So... Um, I think moving back to to Ireland when I did gave me a real, a really, really great appreciation of the music scene that we have here. Um, and also just the ways in which like leaving Ireland can kind of change the way you write and change the way you write about it. And um, yeah, I think I think ev- everyone's relationship to home is different and the way that people yes. incorporate into that into their music is very different. And I think that's something that this show kind of celebrates in a really special way. And will you be performing yourself on uh, the, on Sunday night? I will. Yeah, I, I, I think that's part of part of the job description that they part gave of me. The gig. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's go back to to Rachel, who's who's here in studio with us. And you mentioned uh, when you were talking about big dreams, Rachel, that uh, it was you were in Lisbon at the time. Have you been travelling around quite a bit? And are, are you settled back in in Ireland now? Or what way is that location aspect of your life? Um, no, mainly I've been living. I've li- been living in Dublin. Um, but I I have done two residencies in Lisbon in this specific place and definitely yeah going there. Well, what's going the tra- what's the attract? Is there something particular about Portugal or is it just somewhere um, that with which you've built a connection? I think it's just a specific place that I found like this studio is really inspiring and like a really beautiful space to write in. Yeah, so it it's just the right it's the right spot for and a you. A little bit of holiday mode as well, yeah. like relaxing. A little bit yeah. more sunshine, perhaps yeah. <laughs> than we we might be used to. Um, second piece that you're going to sing for me, second song that you're going to sing for me this evening is called Requiem. You were saying to me before the show starts tonight, maybe it's a working title. Is it still the working title I of the song? I think it's a working title. Yes. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about it before we hear it? Um, yeah, I wrote the song. A good while ago, and I'm still sort of figuring out what it is about. Um, I read that pacemakers were hackable, and I thought that that was kind of terrifying, and I could make a weird sort of love ballad, which is very creepy, I know. Right, so pacemakers are hackable <laughs> as inspiration for, for song. You know, inspiration comes in its crazy ways. <laughs> Requiem from Rachel Lavelle. Before I am 
her song Requiem performing live in studio for us and this is ahead of her performance at the Imagine Ireland concert which takes place in the National Concert Hall in Dublin this coming Sunday and then straight over to London in fact on uh, Monday March the 4th uh, to the Barbican Centre and Sir Richardson who has curated the concert is uh, with us on the line the trip to London, <laughs> you're, you're certainly going to work everybody who's there, Sirica, with that swift turnaround. I presume it'll be straight know, on to a flight. On... <laughs> that was not my call. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be straight on to a flight on Monday morning, I guess, will it? Yeah, I think we're, we're flying out early enough on Monday, so we'll have to be save our celebrations for, for Monday night, I think. Mm. I, the other thing, I've, I've, as I was listening to you and watch you, watching you play there, Rachel, is the piano the, the major compositional tool for you? Because the, the piano part that you're playing there is it's quite complex, it's quite complicated. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I usually would write on the piano. Yeah, mainly. Uh, or else with synths and things, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this more than once. Any chance we'd get a Eurovision song from you, given that it's your grandfather, isn't it? <laughs> that, that has, he, has he composed the, the Sean Dunphy Eurovision song back in the back in 19, the nineteen sixties? If I could choose, has, has that had any effect? There's obviously music in the family. Did did his heritage come to you in any way? Oh yeah, definitely. He was a huge inspiration. He um, he was just obsessed with melody and. Yeah, that definitely influenced my songwriting. Yeah, uh, it wasn't off the ground. You picked up the melodic writing then, and <laughs> and the singing. Were you, did you sing in choirs or anything? Because you've um, quite yeah, a high yeah. soprano I've voice sung, there. Yeah. I've sing in choirs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, listen. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in and and singing for us this evening. And Thank you so much, Surika, Thanks for joining us on the line as well. Thank that you. is Rachel Lavelle and Surika Richardson there, and imagining Ireland with Surika Richardson, Ye Vagabonds, Abby Kulabali, Susan O'Neill, Mayo, and Rachel Lavelle. Is on Sunday with the 3rd of March at the National Concert Hall following night in the Barbican in London if you happen to be there but you'll find out full details of Sunday night's concert on nch.ie
Pregnant with a Drag Queen is a part surreal drama, part documentary. It tells the story of how a queer kid in 1990s Dublin discovers their true identity and inner strength when they give birth to a vibrant drag queen. The film is based on the inspirational life and journey of Veda, one of Ireland's most formidable drag artists and HIV activists. It premiered at the Dublin International Film Festival at the weekend. Sold out. It will also be on tonight on Virgin Media 1 television at 11pm and will be available on their player too. Delight to be joined by Veda in the studio this evening. What was that premiere like? Uh, it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it was the first time that uh, obviously we'd seen it on the big screen, which mm. is overwhelming. I was delighted with how pretty my teeth looked. And, um, and the atmosphere in the room was great. And yeah, it was overwhelming. How well dressed were people, I'm really wondering. Uh, beautifully, impeccably turned out. You know, you know what drag queens are like. Yeah, the red carpet looks were pretty strong. I would, I would have presumed that it was a multicoloured carpet <laughs> at the very least that exactly. would have been there on the night. Should I even dressed for radio though. Charles, yes, yeah, you, you certainly see. did. You're looking, you're looking very dapper. I must say in Thank the in you. the outfit this evening. Let's talk about that that journey to Veda. Veda was uh, obviously that that wonderful title, "Pregnant with a Drag Queen." Veda was ov- obviously always inside you. Yes, from the very start, it was a matter of how long was that gestation, and when did you become aware you were pregnant with this uh-huh. drag queen? Uh huh. I like to call Veda the most beautiful woman in the world in her price range, and <laughs> you know, she, for a glamazon, she's also quite practical. And I think she existed in me ever since I was a child. I think some kids might have imaginary friends, but my imaginary friend was an imaginary gender, Mm. some other personality that I had that I repressed all the time. I was going to ask you, you, you've kind of answered it in that final part of the question, how how much of that was had to stay hidden or kept hidden? Were there points when you felt uh, as a young child, I can let this out or and other points when you thought there's no way I'm sharing that in this particular place or time. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't feel like I could share it. I wasn't encouraged to in any way. But it was a world away from where we are today. Yeah, we're talking 1980s, 1980s Ireland. Yeah, 1970s and well, 1980s. I suppose, yeah, when you were a kid. Yeah. yeah, when I was a small kid, it was the 1970s, the ABBA era. Of course, I was obsessed with all of that. But, you know, I wasn't encouraged to be. Mm. I was obsessed with playing with dolls. As a very small kid, maybe four or five, my parents took me to Hamleys in London. And I was told that... I could have whatever I wanted and I wanted more than anything a Russian doll you know there was a doll inside a doll inside a doll years later my therapist told me that was very deep but anyway I wanted a Russian doll and when we got there I wasn't allowed to have it I was a very privileged kid even to be in Hamleys to get Mm. gifts like that but still I, I think that the message goes all the way back to there where the things that I naturally wanted and gravitated towards I wasn't encouraged to play with dolls and I remember drawing a lot designing a lot of dresses for princesses mm. and things like that. And teachers in those days were rotters. They would like, you know, report you to your parents for stuff like that. Now you think about it and think, wow, isn't that crazy mm. that, you know, what you were drawing was being policed by someone else and then your parents are being shamed for it and then they in return how, are how, shaming you for it. I, how, how big an issue was shame? I mean, interesting that you said not just you being shamed but your parents being shamed as well. How big an issue yeah. was that? I think it was a real thing. You know, if, if your son didn't want to play sports, that seemed to be an issue. If you didn't hang out in the sitting room when the match was on and you hung out in the kitchen instead where your aunts were, you know, that was an issue. There's a lot of judgment in those days and shame became a bit of a theme for me because I hit puberty at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and I had no sexual experience and not much knowledge Mm. and I was already being accused of having AIDS, of giving people AIDS, of, of potentially dying of AIDS, you know, so shame really became... Like like a big thing for me. One of the things that you show in the film, it's it's a it's. We were talking about this just before we came to air. It's it's twenty two minutes long. You pack so much into that to that twenty two minutes. But one of one of the things is a full thirty second ad from the television in the nineteen eighties around uh, the AIDS uh, crisis at that time. Yeah. Even today, looking at it, 
you kind of go, did we really have ads that were so full of fear, so full of, again, shaming so much of that? Now, obviously, there were there were health concerns at the time and perhaps yeah. possibly ignorance was fueling a lot of that. But those ads are extraordinary when you look at them now They're in hindsight. Horrific. And it wasn't just the Irish government. It wasn't just the HSC, you know, all over Europe. There was stuff like that going on, indeed, all over the world. Um, and the media, the, the newspaper reporting on HIV AIDS was shocking mm. as well. But this was Ireland before Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope. As I like to say, it was very different then. Um, The the culture was so different. Mr. Pussy is responsible. For for all of it changing, really, (laughs) single-handedly. And and certainly responsible for the beginnings of your um, awareness of whatever number of Russian dolls were hiding inside (laughs) your your young boy's body at that time. Yeah. Um, And Mr. Pussy is still a a living legend. Mr. Pussy had a brunch on Sunday, a cabaret brunch, you know. Uh, She's still swinging and going and working. I like to say that Robbie Lawler, the HIV activist and friend of mine, plays Panty in the film, a young Panty. But Mr. Pussy plays a young Mr. Pussy, (laughs) you know. (laughs) She's still got it. And she's in the film. She's in the film. And Mr. Pussy had a cafe. Uh, She was partners with U2 and Gavin Friday in this cafe on Suffolk Street called Mr. Pussy's Cafe Deluxe. It was a 23 and a half hour open cafe. It was a speakeasy mixed with a greasy spoon. Mm. And um, and I had the privilege of working there when I was a, a young gay on the scene. So I was exposed to Mr. Pussy and all of her many myriad of amazing social contacts and so many celebutants uh, <laughs> passed through that place and queer pop stars and supermodels, the lot. Yeah, because at that time, I think this is mentioned in the film as well, Adam Clayton would, would have been dating Naomi Campbell. So this exactly. was, there were superstars in this in this Café Deluxe. You two were superstars, still are, but you mm. know, really were at the height of their power. It was the Octung Baby time when they were doing more rave music and they had opened the Kitchen Night Club in the Clarence Hotel. And Dublin was really having a moment, mm. you know, uh, as a place to a cool place to hang out. And Veda refers to uh, Mr. Pussy as uh, their drag mother. She is my drag mother. That's the tradition in drag, you know, that whoever basically inspired you or introduced you to drag is your drag mother. Um, I like to say she's like the Joan Crawford of drag mothers, though. <laughs> you know? It's pretty good. That's a pretty good drag mother to have, let's face it. You, you did, however, head off to San Francisco uh, at, at a certain point. What... Was it simply the repression and the inability to express yourself the way you wanted to? Was was that what sent you off or were there other things at play here as well? In the early 90s, I think the whole generation of queer men before us who had survived HIV AIDS had moved away. And that was just the tradition then, moved to London or moved to the States. And um, it just wasn't a safe place to be queer up until the, it, the the beginning of my adult homosexuality, it was still illegal. We didn't decriminalize homosexuality till after I was already out there mm. in the in the pubs and clubs, and that was very intimidating fact to know that your lifestyle uh, was legislated against by the state. And so everybody went away and we had the fabulous J1 system then where you could get to go and spend a summer somewhere. I uh, followed my friend Paul who had a visa, who won a visa lottery to San Francisco and he had already started doing drag there in this amazing club called The Stud. And he signed us up for a show that very day, the day that we arrived. And wow. um, we performed a song called I'm in Love with a German Film Star by a band called The Passions. It's an amazing song mm. if you ever want to listen to it. Larry Gogan's niece was the lead singer of The Passions. Um, and later on in the show, another queen performed called Steve Lady. And Steve Lady had connected the dots between like a, a, an andro- androgynous Bowie type yeah. drag character yeah. And the 1990s kind of grunge scene. And I had never seen anything like her. And that is really when it started for me, that it went from being just this funny... Yeah, it, it, it struck me that seeing Steve Lady was the moment that Veda kicked in your... Yeah, <laughs> after, the first kick from the baby. Absolutely, the first kick for sure. 
And that's really, I think, what inspired me. So when I came back to Dublin, I had, a, a, you know, the passion mm. for drag. And we didn't have a drag community here, but luckily Panty was already here and we already were socially friends. Mm. And Shirley Temple Bar just blossomed onto the scene yeah. that year as well. And we became friends. So the three of us came a bit of, became a bit of a force together. We started doing shows together in the pod, a show called Gristle, which became really popular. Uh, we were performing at a big club called Powder Bubble and Panty was hosting the Alternative Miss Ireland and we both were Alternative Miss Ireland winners, <laughs> along with Catherine Lynch and some other fabulous yes, people yes, over the and years um, although uh, you, uh, Veda was a runner up one year which did not please yes, them at all yes in 1998 I was a runner up I went on to win in 1999 but in 1998 Catherine Lynch won and I came second and I guess because Veda is a kind of character, I was fully committed to the character and I threw a big hissy fit and I threw <laughs> my runners up prize which happened to be a golden perquette in the general direction of the judges and the judges' table. And it managed to hit the table and send the drinks flying everywhere. Um, the legend is that I threw it at Louis Walsh, but I did not, of course, throw it at anyone in particular. Yeah, yeah just in the general <laughs> just direction. Just the general direction of the bad judgments. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, 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 the nature of the film, the film being called Pregnant with a Dragon, the nature of the film is it's, it's as if Veda is on a stool being interviewed in one of these kind of Jerry Springer type of talk shows that's that's what's going on here where did that idea come in as a way of I suppose showing us this, it's your story that we're seeing on screen uh-huh. well Colin initially Colin, who is Colin Brady uh, who is the director and who wrote the script he wrote it from my own mouth from a series of interviews that he did with me at home when he first came up with the idea of making a film about me and then because he was listening to a series of interviews I think it occurred mm. to him that we could do it in an interview style and recreate all of these little stories he chose those particular events from so many events that we had talked about and that's how the idea was born but also there was um, a history in the 1980s of queer people being brought on these mainstream chat shows and basically vilified in ways or mocked yeah. in ways yeah. so he wanted the chat show host not to be you know a, a particularly appealing person yeah. or the environment to be too friendly Yeah I wondered about that because I did think I don't. I can't. I was. I was uncomfortable in some ways with the way the TV host was treating Veda, treating yeah. you on the show. Yeah. There was no respect. There was a kind of a, a you know kind of dirty scatological laughter about the whole situation and and not being taken seriously at all. Let's have a listen to a clip then where um, Veda is speaking to the television host, played brilliantly by Brian Quinn as the I <laughs> rather love Brian. He's rather so slimy great. TV host that he's playing here. And if there are. Um, drag parents then there must be drag children as well we will hear an interruption in the midst of this clip Facing now is a doubling of AIDS cases in a nine month period and it's ravaging those communities As soon as AIDS came along people started accusing me of having AIDS and that was before I had ever even had sex and that kind of stuff can really mess you up so I wasn't ready to share my HIV diagnosis with anyone and I end up keeping it a secret for a decade. I like to say that Edith Piaf had no regrets, Frank Sinatra had a few, but I was like, oh, fuck. Uh, sorry about the language there, folks. I do hold apologize. up, hold up. I want a DNA test. <laughs> <laughs> DNA test. I don't think the budget stretches oh, that far here. Come on, what's wrong with this yeah, audience? Yeah. Uh, it off. And your name is, please, uninvited guest. Who, who me? Who me? This is my beautiful drag daughter, Pixie. <laughs> so what are we talking about? Well, I was just telling these gorgeous people all about my HIV journey. Oh, good for you, but I already know that one. And that is the wonderful Pixie Woo, your drag daughter, yes. <laughs> Veda, who appears as part of the film. And 
Pixie Wu isn't the only drag artist who is there. There are wonderful moments where the checkout girl, who you were kind of inspired as a young kid by a checkout yeah. girl in your yeah. local supermarket, who had wonderful makeup. Uh, Miz, Miza, is it Miza? Miza, Miza well Miza plays, spotted. Spares the checkout girl, and there's a teacher as well. Oh, in my there. other favorite, my one Mary of my favorite scenes. <laughs> yeah. Mary and Mary, when they recreate those scenes of us children. Uh, yeah learning this song in choir and Freddie Cornelly who plays me as a child is so mm. great and they're singing a song that I wrote called Super Marche and it just gives me chills it, it looks exactly right and feels exactly right and my childhood music teacher was Miss Fitzpatrick and there's something about that particular drag <laughs> that yeah. Marion Mary is in that really nails Remind, that as Remind. well what what would you like? I mean, obviously you've you've had the success and and the joy of the um the, the premiere at the Dublin International Film Festival and now the screening on Virgin Media tonight. What would you like, or what are you hoping people might take from the film? What's the big takeaway that you would like to see? Um, one of the important messages of the film is that um, people like myself who are living with HIV and who are on effective medication can't pass on. HIV to anyone else. Mm. So in that way, we're a really good, safe option. And that is explained medically and scientifically within the film. Yeah, which is great. I love that that is there. But also, there are 10 other people living with HIV apart from me in the cast. And representing ourselves in this way in the story, I think is amazing. Adrian, who plays me as a young man, has been living with HIV since he was 17 years old. And he is a student nurse. This is his first time you know, doing yeah. something like this. And I just love that we can come together as a community and, and represent ourselves. And you've done that this evening by sharing all of your stories uh, with us. Veda, thanks so much for coming into us. That is Veda Thank speaking to so us much. about the film Pregnant with the Drag Queen, 11pm this evening on Virgin Media. Presumably a whole bundle of you sitting at home watching that. Enjoy and enjoy enormously. Thanks for coming in. Following its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, the Tunisian feature Four Daughters went on to win the Golden Eye Documentary Prize, a César, and has been nominated for an Oscar in the Best Documentary Feature Film category. The film tells the story of Alfa Hamrouni, a Tunisian woman who has four daughters. The two older girls, Gofran and Rama, fled home to join Islamic State in Libya, leaving Alfa at home with the two younger girls, Aya and Taisir. Four Daughters blurs the lines between documentary and drama as director Kalta Benhania uses professional actors to take the place of Alpha's two missing daughters and at times, as well as Alpha playing herself, there is another actor playing her part as well. The film will be screened this Friday, March the 1st and on Saturday the 2nd at the Lighthouse Cinema as part of the Dublin International Film Festival. I'm delighted to be joined by Carter Banhania, the director and writer of Four Daughters on the Line now. Carter, it really is a, a very interesting story to, to start out with, the story of Alpha, who is the woman at the centre, really, uh, of this of this family. When did you hear her story and what was it that attracted you to what you heard about her? I heard about this story uh, in 2016, so many years ago. At the time, Ulfa made public the story of her daughters. Uh, she was uh, on Tunisian media uh, and I heard an interview in a radio like this one. Uh, and I was really um, attracted first by the... Olfa's character, she's uh, flawed, full of contradiction. Um, and I also thought that it's a tragedy, but, you know, like when you open uh, the headlines, you watch the headlines, you you, you don't uh, know uh, the origin of those kind of tragedy. Uh, so I wanted to understand why. Uh, those two young, uh, beautiful girls uh, were attracted by this morbid path. And then it, uh, it it's a women's story. So for me, it was very uh, interesting also on that level. Yes. Alpha, as you say, is uh, full of contradictions at times. Um, one of the things that really struck me uh, about the family as the four girls grew up was the amount of violence that there was in the family all around them, both from men and from Alpha herself. Yeah, 
Yes, I I think that. Um... I mean, we see in the movie that in this family, it's a kind of what Ulfa called the curse. You know, you have this inheritance uh, uh, trauma through generation and violence also. Uh, it was, um, how to say, very interesting to link this violence and all those trauma to the to the destiny of those girls. The other thing that is is really notable, as I pointed out, it, it's understandable that we would have two actors playing the part of the missing daughters. Those who know the headlines behind uh, the story behind the headlines will know why they can't and couldn't be part of the documentary. But you also choose to have Alpha represent herself. So sometimes she tells her story directly to the camera, as in uh, a regular documentary, if I can put it that way. But then at other times, there are scenes enacted by the actor Hen Sabri playing the part of Alpha. What did you want from that particular technique? I wanted, first of all, as I said, Ulfa is a bigger than life character. She's full of co- contradiction and she's very charismatic, you know. Uh, and in general, because I do also fiction, in general, when I'm writing a screenplay and I have a character becoming like this big and big, I split it in two so I can create conflict and we can understand better uh, the character. So this is what I did exactly in this uh, documentary. I brought an actress uh, so she can give Olfa a mirror and she can be the surrogate of the audience, you know, so we can better understand this character and Olfa can better uh, be in ref- a reflective mode about her uh, character. There's also some quite funny moments when Alpha is, if you like, correcting Hen Sabri, saying, no, I didn't do it that way or I was firmer than that uh, or I was funnier than that. She, she She's a bit of a director as well as everything else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I told them to direct the act, uh, the actors since it's their life and they are the the storyteller of their uh, their life. And just to say that Tint Sabri, the actress playing Olfa, she's a huge star in the region, in Egypt and uh, mm. in all Arab-speaking country. And Olfa is fan of Hint Sabri. So w- w- seeing Olfa directing Hint Sabri and correcting her, you know, it was... Uh, I mean, Hint is a great actress and this movie was a real uh, risk for her because mm. she was outside her comfort zone and she was portraying a real woman, uh, watching her <laughs> playing the part. It's not what actor uh, uh, actors yeah. do uh, uh, in general. So uh, that's why also I want to point that it's a movie that actors like very much because it tells them also something about their work. The other uh, aspect of this that I, I found um, quite interesting was the two younger sisters who are themselves. This is Aya and Taisir. They are there being themselves, telling their story and remembering back as best they can uh, to the events uh, that led to the radicalisation of their two older sisters. And then you have the two actors playing the part of those older sisters. They really did become like four daughters. They became like four sisters did you spend a lot of time workshopping with them and and working through the kind of relationships that all four siblings had? No, at all. I mean, we see it in the movie. One of the first scenes they meet for the first time, um, introducing them to the uh, actresses that will play their uh, old sister. But when I casted the actress, since I knew very well the Olfa's daughters, when I casted the actress, I had this in mind. I casted those uh, uh, actresses not for their uh, great performance, although they are uh, uh, wonderful, but for their personality and uh, their empathy. So the magic operated mm. suddenly and became very close till today. I mean, till today they have a WhatsApp group. They are uh, like behaving like real sisters. They are sisters of, uh, of cinema, you know, in a way. The the radicalization of the two older sisters. Um, how did that start? Because Alpha herself was a very strict mother uh, with them, mm-hmm. and they rebelled against that. They didn't want to follow this line that she was looking for them. What t- turned those two older sisters into the radicalized beings that they became later on? 
We can see it in the movie. I mean, as you said, Ulfa was very strict with her daughters. And at some point when they were approached by this uh, radical movement, I think being teenager in that age and not uh, very happy with their mother being strict with them because they are like all teenagers. They want to uh, have their own personality. They want to see them becoming uh, gothic at some point. So... I, I think what happened is that they realized suddenly that in becoming radicalized, they can lecture their mother. They can make the uh, her becoming their daughter in a way, you know. Uh, so it's a matter of power, the dynamic between the authority of the, the this matriarchal uh, patri- slash patriarchal figure, which is Olfa and her daughters. So it's... and. I think that they like it very much the fact mm. how how much power the radical uh, radicalization um give them so this is one of the reason I think the other uh, aspect of that when they start to take the power and I can't remember forgive me whether it was Gofran or Rama which of the two older sisters it was one of Alpha's friends became pregnant outside of marriage and the girl the daughter of Alpha decided well, once you have this baby, you're going to be stoned and I'm going to be at the front of that line to stone you. It's quite a frightening idea that a young woman could become that violent in in such a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can see, we see in the movie that she was... She was just threatening everybody because, as I told you again, this friend of her mother, she's an adult and you have this uh, teenager trying to lecture everybody to feel uh, powerful in a world that where she have no power. So it's in a way, you know, threatening, stoning and her sister say at some point she can do it, she will go to jail. But the fact that she say it and uh, she's threatening, I think that it was uh, a kind of uh, joy for her Mm. in a way because we see that those girls are unloved and they are abused also. And also, as we see at some point in the movie, they are because they are beautiful, they are suspected of being bad women, you know, becoming bad women. Their father is telling them, I know you will become uh, this and this. So the radicalization makes them also, you know, as I said, powerful, but also saint in a way, you know. We are not those kind of women. Yes, they they become almost holier than holy in some ways in exactly, in in, yeah. in some of their behaviour. However, there are there are deeply disturbing events in the in the lives of all four daughters. There's one scene where we see the two younger. These are the real life daughters, Aya and Taisir. Mm-hmm. We see them confronting uh, a, a boyfriend of their mother's who had abused them, and the scene mm-hmm. is it's very upsetting to watch. And we see one of the sisters. One of the younger girls is quite happy to get a chance to do this. The other is very upset by what she is is reliving. What sort of um, ethics did you have to have in your mind when you're recreating and reenacting the scene like that with the real people involved? I mean, when we, we I met them, as I told you, in 2016, uh, we shot only in 2021. The first uh, main thing that uh, w- was obvious for me was they should follow uh, follow a therapy. I mean, they were following or- already a therapy paid by the government, but they didn't like their therapist. So during all those years, and Olfa also followed the therapy, I saw them uh, becoming, you know, the strong uh, women they are in the movie. And we see in this scene, Aya saying that she won't be seen, that she already solved all those issue with the therapist and uh, she wants want this scene so uh, it's a it's a cathartic moment for her and also for her her sister in a way yes yeah, so Tysir, the younger daughter she is the one who gets most upset whereas aya seems to be quite happy to to enact out confronting the abuser which is what she does within that have you followed the family since um, the making of the film? And do you know where things are now in terms of a potential family reunion? Yeah, I mean, I'm in contact with them uh, almost daily because we are living something very crazy with this uh, 
this movie it started in Cannes Film Festival and they also traveled a lot with the movie and for them it's also a way to be heard you know and we are trying to pressure the Tunisian government so they can find a solution to those girls and the little daughter uh, granddaughter of Olfa so um, they are fine their sisters are still in jail in Libya Uh, and we are doing our best to so we can secure a better future for Alfa's grandchild. You say that uh, Alfa and uh, Aya and Taisir, the, the mother and two daughters, have been travelling with you. Will they be anywhere near the Oscars on March the 10th? We are doing our best, but you know how is it for visas problem for the US? We are like trying not to lose hope. Mm. But we would love to have them with us, like in Cannes. In Cannes, it was a nightmare to get them visa. But we succeeded like in the last day before the screening. So we hope we'll do the same thing here. Well, listen, I, I hope that it does work out. It would be lovely to see them get the opportunity to share their story with, with that audience as well. And the best of luck uh, with the Oscars on March the 10th, Cather. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kather Ben-Hania there, director and writer of the documentary Four Daughters, which will be screened this Friday, March the 1st, and again on this Saturday, the 2nd of March at the Lighthouse Cinema as part of the Dublin International Film Festival. Further details there on diff.ie. The film will also be screened at Paulos in Galway, that screening on March the 15th, and again at the Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray on May the 27th. And incidentally, continuing with the Dublin International Film Festival. Tomorrow evening on the programme we'll be speaking with Maxine Peake telling us about her new film. It's called Woken. It also gets its premiere at this year's Dublin International Film Festival. We'll also have TV reviews, Shogun, the completely made up adventures of Dick Turpin and Faithless. And uh, we'll be heading shortly to over to Vicker Street where the Folk Awards are about to get underway. But first of all let me tell you that tonight's researcher was Niall Fitzmaurice. Broadcast coordinator was Ollie Hamilton. Sound supervision was by Harry Buckless. And Reg Luby produced tonight's programme.